This morning, we are going to uh, jump back into and conclude uh, our core value series. Uh, we took a couple weeks off for uh, Easter to celebrate Easter, which was great. And now we're jumping back in uh, to look at our seventh and final core value, which is gospel-centered community. And what I want to do before we unfold what gospel-centered community actually is, uh, is just give us a little bit of a refresher of what are these core values, what is their purpose, what, you know, what, what, are, what, what do they mean for our church, essentially. Core values are truths that direct and drive everything that we do. They are principles that we are seeking to live in light of. Um, we have a vision statement or a purpose statement that is to glorify God by equipping believers to advance the gospel. That is what we believe we are called to as Fairlawn Mennonite Church. And as you look at these seven core values, these lay at the foundation of our church. And so as we are reflecting these core values, as we are living consistently with them, they are going to help us accomplish the purpose that we have as a church to equip believers to advance the gospel. So these core values play a very important role in our church. They're meant to be the foundation of our church. The thing that identifies us at our heart are these core values. And as I said, as we live in light of them, they will help us to accomplish our purpose as a church. And so we've gone through the previous six, and now we've come to gospel-centered community. So as we begin here, what do we mean by gospel-centered community? I think that most often when we think about the word specifically community, we think like a geographical area. I think Dan even used it in that way this morning in the, in the news time. Speaking about our community, that is the area that surrounds our church or the place where we live. Now that's not the way we're using community here in this value. The way that we are using community here in this value is to talk about our relationships inside of the church, primarily. So when we talk about gospel-centered community, what we're really talking about is how our relationships and the way that we relate to one another, specifically in the body of Christ, should be centered around the gospel. And I'll explain a little bit more of what that looks like as we move on. But this value seeks to show us how the gospel influences and transforms our relationships with other believers. Now the fact that the gospel transforms our relationships necessarily means that our relationships stand in need of being transformed, right? There's something wrong with the way that we, we relate to one another that needs to be changed, that needs to be transformed. And just as in every other area of our life, what is that problem that comes in between our relationships? It's sin, right? Sin comes between us. And one of the primary ways that sin seeks to break down and destroy our relationships is by creating barriers in our relationships. Sin creates barriers to investing in new relationships, and it creates barriers in current relationships that we already have. And so what I want to do throughout the course of this message is to show you how the gospel impacts our relationships with one another and what it means to be a gospel-centered community. 
And the way that we're going to do this, if you want, you can follow along in the bulletin uh, insert there. First, we're going to look at the problem. We're going to look at the problem of sin and how it builds barriers in our relationships. And then we're going to come to see how the gospel was designed to break down those sinful barriers in our relationships. And then lastly, we're going to consider a couple marks of a gospel-centered community. And what I'm hoping to do at this point when we get there is to hold up for you a picture of what it looks like to be a gospel-centered community so that we can analyze our own personal lives and the life of the church and really see how consistently we are living with this value and I'm sure ways that we will need to grow. Uh, There's not going to be one specific text that we look at this morning, and so I'm just going to begin here by praying, and then we'll dive right in. Father, sin affects every area of our lives, and it's abundantly clear that it affects our relationships as well. And as we come come to you this morning, we understand that sin has grave consequences. Sin keeps us from hearing your word. Sin keeps us from wanting to submit to it. Sin keeps us from being convicted. Sin keeps us from desiring to repent. As we come to your word this morning, Lord, in this value of gospel-centered community, I just pray that your spirit would be here removing that sin from us, giving us tender hearts and tender consciences as we look into your word. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. So let's begin with the problem. Sin builds barriers in our relationships. And where I want to go to establish kind of the theological groundwork for this point is back to Genesis. If you'd like, you can see a couple verses there. You can turn back there uh, if you'd like. We're going to look first at Genesis chapter 2. And in this chapter, what we see is God creating the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. Uh, And it comes down to the end of the chapter where he talks about uh, creating them. And it says that uh, the man is to leave his father and his mother and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then in verse 25, God gives us the description of this man and this woman that he has just created perfect and just brought together in marriage. This is the description that he gives to Adam and Eve. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is a very interesting description, is it not? This is the description that God chose to use to identify Adam and Eve after creating them perfect and bringing them together in marriage. Why why would God choose this description for them? What is meant here by naked and not ashamed? I think it's clear that uh, obviously they were physically naked and were not ashamed, but is there something more that is meant here by this description? I think that there is, and so does commentator Victor Hamilton. And this is what he says about the nakedness of Adam and Eve. He says, of course, naked refers primarily to physical nudity, But one may also think that no barrier of any kind drove a wedge between Adam and Eve. 
You see, God is getting at something more than just physical nudity here. He's talking about the relationship that Adam and Eve had with one another. That there was no barrier that stood in between them. They had a perfect relationship unbroken by sin. And we have a model here. This is the way that God created our relationships to be as well. Unbroken by the barriers that sin creates. Now we understand that this state didn't last very long. When we turn the page to Genesis chapter 3, we see that sin comes into humanity through Adam and Eve. And we see what the consequences of that are. So as we move into Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve take of the fruit, they eat it, Sin comes into them. Sin comes into humanity. And this is what is said right after they do that. Speaking of Adam and Eve, Genesis 3-7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. You see what's happening here? After sin enters into them, after they rebel against God, what is the first thing that happens? A barrier is put up between them. They clothe themselves. They now know that they are naked and they're not okay with that. They become ashamed of their nakedness as evidenced by the fact that they try to cover themselves up. Sin builds barriers in our relationships. Just like it was for Adam and Eve when they sinned, the first thing they did was clothe themselves. Speaking about their relational tension now, that their relationship was now broken by sin, we too, just like our first parents, create barriers in our relationships. You see, what we most often do is that we, we create categories in our minds and we, we take people that we see and we put them in that category and then that category becomes for us a barrier to relationships with them. Uh, in our minds we say, because they are in this category, I'm not going to relate with them. What are some of these sinful barriers that keep us from investing in meaningful relationships. I have three very broad, big picks, 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 broken down uh, a lot farther, but three categories that I want to point out. The first is racial barriers. Because we are sinful, we often allow the color of other people's skin to be a barrier to having meaningful relationships with them. Either consciously or subconsciously, we put up these barriers in our minds that cause us to value people who look like us over people who don't. We have racial barriers to relationships. There are economic barriers and social barriers. Because we are sinful, we often allow the financial status or reputation of others to be a barrier to having meaningful relationships with them. We often look down on others who are not as well off as we are financially or have the reputation that we have. And we allow our differences in financial position and in reputation 
and the discomfort that might cause in relating to them to just keep us from engaging them at all. Economic and social barriers. We have cultural barriers. Because we are sinful, we often allow the differences in upbringing, personality, political views, and the traditions of others to be a barrier to having meaningful relationships with them. We find it hard to relate to people who do not share the same cultural values that we do. So we forgo pursuing a relationship with them and instead invest in people who are like us. You see, this is the devastating consequence that sin has on our relationships. We saw it with Adam and Eve, and we continue to see it in ourselves as well. Our natural tendency is to put up barriers between ourselves and other people. But thankfully, as we are going to now see, God designed the gospel to break down those sinful barriers between his people that they might share in this open fellowship and relationship that Adam and Eve once had. Now, as we turn here, uh, get your Bibles ready in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be looking. But what I need to point out to start is that the primary emphasis of the gospel is what it does to our relationship with God. That is, it reconciles us to God. This is the primary emphasis of the gospel, that it bridges the chasm that exists between us and God because of our rebellion and sin. It breaks down the sinful barriers between us and God and gives us peace with Him. However, if the gospel we live by and proclaim only speaks of reconciliation with God, it is an insufficient and weak gospel. The gospel was not only designed to break down the barriers between man and God, but between man and man. In our horizontal relationships, the Gospel was designed to break down the barriers that we have with one another. We see this clearly in Ephesians chapter 2. The first half of the chapter speaks about the primary emphasis of the Gospel. How the Gospel reconciles us to God in the first ten verses. And then 11 through 22 speaks about the other side, where the gospel was designed to reconcile us to each other and to break down those sinful barriers. And I want to look at the latter portion. I'm going to read verses 11 through 15 so you can get the sense of the passage. Beginning in verse 11, Paul says. Therefore, remember that at one time, you, you gentles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall 
of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So this is how this passage kind of unfolds. In verses 11 and 12, Paul speaks about the Gentiles and how uh, they were apart from Christ and they were not partakers in the covenants of Israel. They were separated from Jesus and without hope in the world and without God. But because of what Jesus came to do, verse 13, these Gentiles have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. They've been made to partake in salvation. And as a result of this, moving into verse 14, we see how the blood of Christ creates horizontal reconciliation. Let's look more closely at verse 14. Paul says that Jesus is the one who has made us both one. Who's he talking about? He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. He has made us both one, both Gentiles and Jews. He has brought into one body. And he says that he has done this by breaking down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And we need to slow down here and kind of understand what these things are. There was this barrier, this dividing wall of hostility that stood between Jew and Gentile. What was this barrier that stood between the two of them? What was the Old Testament ceremonial law? The sacrificial and civil laws of the Old Testament. We see this when we move into verse 15. And it says that this is how Christ created this peace was by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So this barrier that stood between Jew and Gentile that kept them from relating with one another was the Old Testament law. But the law was also a point of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Now this is interesting. And the reason that it's interesting is because God gave the law to be a good thing both for Jew and Gentile. God gave the law to show the people of Israel what it meant to follow Him. And it it was to show them who He was. And to mark them out as a people for God. And this was supposed to be a beacon to the Gentile world. It was supposed to be a means of engaging the Gentile world. And bringing them into the family of God. But somewhere along the line, it became a dividing wall of hostility. It became a point of hostility between Jew and Gentile. No longer was it a good thing but now it was a terribly bad thing. So how did this happen? Well, you see, what happened was the Jews took what was meant to be good and made it a sinful barrier between them and the Gentiles. They took the law of God and said, because we have been given the law of God, we are better than everyone else in the world. We are more blessed, we are more sacred, we are, we, we are just better. And they began to treat the Gentiles as though they were less than. 
you can see how that would create some hostility, right? You see, the Jews were repeating the pattern started by Adam and Eve. Their sin was causing them to put up barriers to their relationships with the Gentile world. And as we have seen, we repeat the pattern of our parents also, creating barriers that keep us from meaningful relationships. And those categories of racial, economic, social, cultural barriers. But this is the point of this passage. And this is the good news. This is the glory of the Gospel that through the death and resurrection of Jesus, He tore down the barrier that stood between Jew and Gentile and brought them into one body, making them one man, as verse 15 says. And the Gospel does the same thing with the sinful barriers that we put up between each other. It was designed to break them down. And to return us to what we had in Eden. Relationships unbroken by sin. Is this the Gospel that we believe? A Gospel that not only breaks down the barriers between us and God, but also between each other. If so... Are we striving to live consistently with this gospel in our relationships? Are we living in reconciliation and peace with one another? Or are we maintaining these sinful barriers and refusing to engage with people because of them? John Stott, commenting on these verses in Ephesians, speaks of the all-too-often inconsistency in the church. That is, we proclaim this Gospel that reconciles us to God and to one another, but we're not living consistently with the relational portion. And this is what he says. He says, it is simply impossible with any shred of Christian integrity to go on proclaiming that Jesus, by His cross, has abolished the old divisions and created a single new humanity of love. While at the same time, we are contradicting our message by tolerating racial or social or other barriers within our church fellowship. What about Fairlawn? What about our individual lives as Christians? Are we tolerating sinful barriers within the church? Are we allowing sinful barriers to keep us from investing in new relationships? Are we believing the true Gospel and seeking to live consistently with it? Sin builds barriers in our relationships. And the Gospel was designed by God to break down these barriers between His people. And a Gospel-centered community is a place where the Gospel is breaking down sinful barriers between God's people. Where we are living consistently with the Gospel that we preach. Now let us conclude by looking at Two marks of a gospel-centered community. 
a gospel-centered community. What does it mean to be a gospel-centered community? And as I said at the beginning, what I'm hoping for here is to give us a picture of what it looks like that we might be able to analyze the life of our church and our own personal lives to see if we're living consistently with this value. So mark number one, a gospel-centered community is a barrierless place. Our church should be a place where sinful barriers and relationships do not exist. You know, when we walk out of these doors every Sunday morning, we are confronted by a world that seeks to divide itself. By barriers in this world that divide humanity. When we go out into the secular world, when we go out into the workplace, when we go out into our geographical community, we see barriers. We see racial barriers. Black lives matter. Blue lives matter. All lives matter. It only takes a flick of your finger down your social media page to realize that race divides us. Divides the world. We have reputation, social barriers. We see people in our community who are unwilling to go and engage with other people because of their reputation and the reputation of the other person. Or because of their economic status. We're divided by the things that we enjoy, hobbies. Think about this in a school context. I'm a basketball player. So I'm only going to hang out with the basketball players. I'm not going to hang out with the baseball players because I'm a basketball player. Or I'm a volleyball player, so I'm not going to hang out with the golfers because I'm a volleyball player. And what does volleyball and golf have in common? Pretty much nothing. Or I'm a seventh grader, so I'm going to hang out with the seventh graders. I'm not going to hang out with the sixth graders. I'm trying to get in with the eighth graders, but they don't want to hang out with me. We create these divisions, right? We, we, we literally put people in these categories and we say, because you're in that category, I'm not going to invest in relationship with you. There are political views that create barriers to relationships. This is obvious, maybe now more than ever. Cultural influences, age, personality, the list goes on and on and on. You see, God has given us a lot of these things that are good. He has given us these things that, that we take and we create and we make sinful barriers out of them to relationships. Whereas it's good for me to have a diversity of relationships in my life, but we take them and we say, no, I'm not going to engage with that person because of this. This happens in our world. We see this when we walk outside of these doors. The question that confronts us this morning is, are these barriers inside the church? Do the same things that divide the secular, unbelieving world divide us inside the walls? Do we consciously or subconsciously avoid relationships with people who are different than us? Are we less welcoming and engaging to those who are different? 
You know, do we think, man, I should go talk to that person, but I, I remember that they voted for Obama, and so, man, I don't even really know what we would have to talk about. If I, if I engaged them, we'd probably just get in an argument, and it wouldn't go well. And so we choose not to. Choose not to engage them. Or maybe we think, man, I should go, I should go talk to that person, but they're old. I mean, what would we even have to talk about, right? I don't even know how to relate to them. Nobody does this, mostly, <laughs> mostly nobody does this like outright. Nobody is brash enough to go up to somebody and say to their face, I don't like you because you voted for Obama, or I don't like you because you're old, and therefore I'm not going to engage with you relationally. We're not bold enough, we're too worried about the reputation that we have to do that, right? What I'm talking about here is a heart and mind struggle. That when we see somebody who walks into the church and we know something about them that maybe we disagree with, we don't go up to them and say, hey, I don't like you for this reason. Uh, what we do is we just look at them, realize that we have this tension perhaps in our, the relationship that we have or this barrier and then we figure out a way how to get to the cafe to drop our kids off in the children's wing without talking to this person. And there's a lot of ways to get from point A to point B. We're just looking for the most evasive way, right? That amounts to the same thing as going up to them and saying, I don't like you because you voted for Obama. We are refusing to engage with people because we put up this sinful barrier between us and them. There's this superficial difference that divides us that we can't get past. When we do this, we are not living consistently with the Gospel we proclaim. A Gospel that not only unites us to God, but also to each other. Let's make it a little bit more personal. Not only should a gospel-centered community be a barrierless place, but when we walk outside of this church every Sunday, we must be a barrierless people. We must be barrierless individual Christians. We must allow the gospel to change us deeply enough that we are glad to interact with somebody of a different race. We must allow the gospel to change us deeply enough that we intentionally begin relationships with people who have different cultural influences than we do. We must allow the gospel to change us deeply enough that we refuse to tolerate sinful prejudices in our relationships. We must understand that the gospel unites us at a level deeper than the color of our skin or our political views. And we must live in light of that reality. The church is a place, the church is a people where we live in light of the reality that the Gospel unites us at the deepest level possible and that no superficial difference 
will hinder the unity and fellowship that we have with one another. The first mark of a gospel-centered community is that it is a barrierless place and it is a barrierless people. The second mark of a gospel-centered community A gospel-centered community values diversity. A church that has been changed and is being changed by the gospel desires racial, cultural, and economic diversity in the church. We're very good at tolerating diversity. What I mean by that is kind of what I alluded to earlier. Is that we're okay if there's a diversity of people that exist here at Fairlawn. We'll tolerate it. If somebody walks in the door, as I said, we're not blunt or brash enough to go up to them and say, we don't like you for this reason. We just do other things to show that. We're good at tolerating diversity in the church. But there is a big difference between tolerating diversity and valuing diversity. When we value something, we desire it, we want it, we prioritize it, we're willing to sacrifice for it. We go to God in prayer and we ask Him for it. When was the last time we prayed as a church for racial, economic, social diversity in our church. Now you may be thinking, is it really that important? Why should we value diversity in our church? Because to me it just kind of sounds like church is going to get a little bit more difficult. It's going to get a little bit harder to come to church on a Sunday morning when there's a diversity of people here. Is it really that important? Is it really essential? Is it really something that we should value? I want you to hear me when I say this. Don't miss this, okay? The reason that we should value diversity in our church is because Jesus gave His life for more than a white, middle-class, conservative church in Apple Creek, Ohio. Jesus shed His blood, bore the wrath of the Father for something much bigger and much more diverse than is in this room. That is why we should value diversity Because Jesus wants it so much that He died for a diverse people. Revelation 5, 9 and 10 says this, Worthy are you, speaking about Jesus, we sang about this this morning. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This description goes far beyond racial diversity. 
Brothers, sisters, Jesus is calling us to be a part of building a church that is welcoming to all people. A place where anyone can walk through these doors and can find rest in Christ and fellowship with His people. And a gospel-centered community is a place where the gospel is valued more than the superficial differences that divide our world. This is the type of church that Jesus is calling us to be. How are we doing? How are we doing? That's what confronts us this morning. As you look at the front of your bulletin and you see all seven core values, you'll notice something there. That the gospel is reflected in every value. And what we must understand by this is that the gospel is what unites this church together. As it applies to our relationships, it goes deeper than the superficial differences that divide us. But as we close, I want to consider why the gospel is in every core value. Why? Well, the gospel is central to the life of the Christian and the mission of the church. And without the gospel, we have no hope and no mission. If we are going to accomplish our purpose of glorifying God by equipping believers to advance the gospel, we must be a people growing in our understanding and belief in the gospel. And when a church is being transformed and united by the gospel, it will be a church that has the blessing and power of God to fulfill the mission He has given to us. You see, the reason that every the gospel is in every value is very simple. We can't afford to forget it. It is the thing that is at the heart of this church, that is at the foundation of this church that we build everything on. Someone should not be able to get from the front door to one of these seats, back to the front door without understanding that this church is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is at the heart of what we do here. And the thing that is going to show that to them, the thing that is going to show them that the gospel is what we value more than anything, is the way that we, as professors of this gospel, Engage them outside the church and engage them when they come into the church. So let us embrace the gospel in every area in which it ought to affect our individual lives and the life of our church. And as we do so, let's expect God to work because this is what we are united around the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to have Keith come up. And he's going to close out this morning with a song. And uh, I realize that in light of what we have talked about this morning, that some of us, maybe all of us, 
may need to do some work with God, may need to go to God and say, you know, I've avoided people because of these sinful barriers that I've put up. Man, I need to repent of that. Maybe I need to go talk to somebody about that. As we close in this song, I just invite you to do work with God and others if necessary. Let's pray. Father, give us racial, economic, social, cultural diversity in this church. We want to be a church that reflects what you desire. We understand that we are sinners and we stand in need of the gospel to transform us through and through. And this impacts our relationships as well. So Lord, may your spirit move within us to confront our hearts, to confront our sin, and to call us to repentance. May we be a church united around the gospel of Jesus Christ.